You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Philippians 2 verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant or a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. So if you look at where this text is, this is Paul doing what Paul does. He's in captivity. He's in prison. Just keep that in mind. Paul is in prison. Where's Paul? Uh, it's important. Yep, he's in prison. And he is writing this letter and the, this particular song, which is interesting for Paul. Paul seems to kind of bust out in song every now and then. Um, it, it's, it's kind of, I, I like to play with that image in my mind, right? Like Paul's writing and he's the Spirit's leading, but he's thinking and he's working this out. And he gets to a point where he's just got to, like there's no, there's no other way to communicate this but then to a song. And I don't know if, you know, he Stands up, does jazz hands, and picks back up and gets to, gets to work. But he, he writes this song in the middle of his letter, which Paul is known to do um, in all of his um, rabbinical... Okay, with all, with all of his rabbinical training um, and all of his, all of his uh, intelligence, he, he lays this out. Now, it's important to see where this is falling. Philippians 2.5. So, so there are four verses that precede this. If you read it, um, and, and I'd ask you not to do that right now, I would read it later. It, it, this text is sandwiched between this call to unity enabled by humility, unity enabled by humility, and then there's this text, and then after this text, there's this call to faithfulness. But it's not just any kind of faithfulness, it's a faithfulness that is a faithfulness of, of not complaining, of, of, of purity, of thoughtfulness, of blamelessness in the eyes of the world, to be like shining stars in the darkness, kind of a faithfulness. Again, somewhat poetic. So there's call to unity enabled by uh, humility. There's call to faithfulness. And in the middle, there's a song about the faithfulness and the humility of Christ. This text has a word that has become a very significant word in Christian theology. It's called kenosis. Say kenosis. All right, and it's an important word. Kenosis is the word for uh, to empty out. So when you look at this here and you see ekenosin, um, that is a, a version of the word kenosis, which means to empty out. So when it says instead he emptied himself, he ekenosined himself, he, this is the kenosis of Christ. And if you were to Google it, um, you'll get a whole score of stuff. Please, 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 in the name of all that is good and holy, be careful what you read if you Google anything theological. Please, please. Please, just don't um, buy books, um, but be mindful, please. All right, so, so when, you, when you look at this, it means to empty out, to empty out. So here's what kenosis is not, and we'll start there. Kenosis isn't to be understand, understood as Christ emptying himself of his divine attributes. He's still God in the flesh. 
He's still fully God and he's fully man. And so the church has wrestled with this all the way back to the 5th century council of Chalcedon, where they wrestled with what does it mean for Jesus to be fully God and fully human? And for us, I don't know why, but we've kind of taken that for granted because it's just been a part of the Christian story, even though we really have a hard time. When we start thinking about it, we have a hard time conceptualizing this idea. I think when we really start looking at the world in which we live, and we look at God and we go, I don't, I don't, it's hard to make, this, make sense of this. The early church didn't have all this stuff that we have bound together just quite. Um, they had letters, it was, it was scattered through, but there was debates on, you know, what does it mean for him to be fully God and fully man? And this was one of the terms that came up. <clears throat> and this is one of the terms that kind of inspired the conversation. What does it mean that God in the flesh, as Jesus Christ, the eternal son, the preexistent son, the eternal word of God came and emptied himself and became a slave or a servant and emptied himself in humility. What does that even mean? Well, I don't think it means emptying himself of his divinity. And I don't think it means emptying himself of divine attributes. And I am going to quote uh, one of my profs, Gorman, and he, he says that kenosis serves as a robust metaphor for total self-abandonment and self-giving. This is, and I, and I, I think, and Gorman, he's like infinitely smarter than me, but he's not the only one who's come up with this. A lot of the scholars have said that these are better terms, the idea of self-humiliation, self-abandonment, self-lowering, that God humiliated himself in Jesus, that God abandoned himself in Jesus, that he lowered himself in Jesus. The divine one emptied himself and became a servant, became human. And then as a human one, didn't stay at the top, didn't stay middle class, didn't stay high class, didn't even stay low class. And as a human, the downward mobility of God, abandoning himself as human, took one more step down to as human abandoning himself to the worst that creation had to offer by becoming obedient to death. That Jesus the Christ poured himself out as the suffering servant and Messiah of God. He poured himself out. I like that image. Poured himself out. All of himself whatever that all and whatever that self means, we see where it leads him. And if you sat and thought about this long enough, that Christianity is the only religion in the world that makes this kind of claim, you would be confused and captivated by the paradox and the irony and the mystery and the profundity and the significance of this kind of claim. The absurdity that the God who holds it all in His hands will pour Himself out in suffering and enter into the deepest places of suffering of His creation. A suffering that He did not create. Listen to me, please. I need you to, we, we need, I need, you need, we need to get this. That our God entered into the suffering He did not create. God did not come and say, you know, this is on y'all. I didn't do this. He didn't do that. 
He didn't scapegoat. He didn't look for somebody else to blame. He truth told. He said it's on us. He didn't waver from the truth. But he didn't say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get her done. He poured himself out instead. He abandoned himself. Whether it means he tied his own hands around behind his back and all of his power. Or whether he just entered in so deeply that his power didn't matter. I don't know. You could read it like this, I think. When you think about Christ and his voluntary self-humbling, self-lowering, self-abandonment, the idea that the divine one empties himself by becoming a servant and then becoming human and then becoming human, humbles himself, humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. I think you could read it like this. It It could say something like this. Although Messiah Jesus was in the form of God, a status people assume means the exercise of power, right, form of God, he acted in a shocking manner opposite to the normal but misguided human perceptions of what it means to be God. Contrary to what we would expect, in fact, he acted in accord with his true divinity, When he emptied and humbled himself to rescue his creation and overcome the worst it had to offer. And he did it all out of self-giving love and proved his power in resurrection. In Christ's self-emptying, he reveals his divine self. And that's what scholars have all agreed with. That this text isn't just something that reveals something about Jesus, this text reveals something about God's nature. That the nature and the character of God includes this pouring Himself out, this taking on the suffering of His beloved, this entering in, this abandonment of self, this lowering of self, this subjecting Himself to humiliation, Now, for those of us who are in theology school, I want you to think of the hermeneutic we discussed. This God who allows himself to be seen as what he's not for the sake of those he loves to save them anyway. This God who would enter into the darkest and deepest places. Who could have, as the old hymn says, called 10,000 angels, but rather took in the nails took in the thorns, took in the beating, took in the blame, took in the allegations, false allegations of treason. The God who came and entered into the life with the leper, the chronically sick, the excluded, and joined them there. The God who did not go to the centers of power and try to change the system from the center of power, but instead went to the places that power was creating the gaps and the oppression, and went there instead and allowed himself to be whatever Rome wanted him to be so that they could find him guilty, allowed himself to be whatever the Jewish leaders wanted him to be so that they could find himself guilty, 
You read the story. Jesus wasn't crucified because he taught everybody to love one another. Don't be that ridiculous. Jesus was crucified because he claimed that there was a king and a kingdom, that love was the guiding ethic, but that love had to look like something. And so Jesus himself followed the way that he called his followers to follow. And in that way, humiliation found him, even to the point of the cross. This is the God who empties himself to rescue. No wonder why when you read this and you start reading Paul's letter, it makes sense that this could be Paul's master story. That this of all the pieces of the story is the part that is most confounding. And it's the opposite This is the opposite of what gods do. Kenosis and God do not go together. Gods don't empty themselves. Gods don't take on, willfully take on, and willingly take on humiliation. Gods don't become humans without exercising their godness. Hercules didn't do that. Thor wouldn't do that. Gods don't do that. So this is now no wonder why Paul found himself in a bit of a conundrum trying to tell the story of this God. And so then Paul, obviously, I think, I shouldn't say obviously because it's not obvious, but it seems like Paul reflects on this when he's writing his letter to Corinth and he's talking to the Corinthian Christians and he says this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. And maybe this is why this this all comes out of his heart. He says, for the word of the cross, the self-emptying, self-abandoning, self-lowering, self-humiliating God, for the word of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of the sage? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet those to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And he says in the beginning, he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And I think sometimes we read that as if we're not the ones perishing. But the fact is, when you look at Christianity in America, I feel like there's a lot of us perishing. Because the word of the cross doesn't seem wise anymore. The idea of self-emptying, the idea of self-lowering, the idea of self-abandoning, oh my Lord, the idea of not scapegoating is like, we can't get our minds around that. We got to have somebody to blame. I didn't do it, so don't blame me. I'm not complicit because I didn't actively do it, so don't blame me. Like instead of like, but we look at God and God does the opposite of that. God could have said, look, I'm not complicit. Like this wasn't my idea. You did this. This is the opposite. And so I wonder, I've been thinking about us all week in my own life. Like where has the cross become foolishness to me? Like that God wouldn't take up war to kill Where does the cross come foolishness to me when I'm so quick to take up war? 
When God doesn't take up scapegoating to let himself off the hook, where, where, where am I? When I'm not willing to accept the responsibilities of my ancestors as part of my own, and yet God accepts all our responsibility, where am I? Like, where am I in this? I've been thinking all week. Where's Fred's self-emptying? Where's Fred's self-abandonment? Where's yours? Because the world sounds like it has better offers. Politic that thing to death. Defend and defend and stand and stand. But are we defending and standing in the right places? And how do you know if you are? Well, I've got a hint. Something I'm learning from Paul. If people want to take you to a cross and what you really believe you've been proclaiming is love and justice for all, then you might be on the right track. But if I'm holding a hammer and I'm situating the nails, the cross may be foolishness to me. Because if there's one thing I see in this story of kenosis, it's the idea that Christ's self-emptying led to self-giving love. It didn't lead to love as sentimentality. It didn't lead to love that waters down truth. It didn't lead to love that tries to explain away what's really going on behind the scenes. It didn't lead to love that just takes on what's the surface. It leads to a love that digs deep and reaches deep and reaches far and climbs in and takes everything else on that comes as a result of that, whether it's the suffering, whether it's the betrayal, whether it's the pain, whether it's the blame, whatever it is, it's a love that reaches in and goes down and does what is right, not what is easy, does what is hard, not what is conventional or convenient. It is a love that does that. And the worst thing of this entire text, the worst thing of this entire Philippians text is the first few words of this text when it says, let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus who? Now, I'd have been very content if Paul would have just left that part out so that all I had to do was look at the text and think, this is what Jesus did. But instead, Paul has the audacity to call me and to call you to actually have this attitude. But I take peace here because if you look, it's self-emptying that is self-giving love. Like God models this in Jesus. He shows us what it looks like. You and I don't have to figure that out. What we have to do is decide what we're going to align our lives with. But here's the th point I made last week that, 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 that's been sticking with me for the last several weeks. And Diana, would you go to that next slide? The, the, part that, the part that's been sticking with me is, is do we know the story well enough to know what self-giving love looks like? Like, when's the last time we saw Jesus on the pages to make sure we understood that we knew what self-giving love really does? Because the whole adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, notice that it says attitude. Like, what was the attitude that drove Christ? What was the attitude that drove him to this kind of life that has literally saved you and me? Because whatever that thing is, that's what we're called to. And whenever we falter or fail, 
at doing that thing, we go back to this and remember that Christ has us covered and we move on and begin again. That is the self-emptying, that is self-giving love. And so I've been thinking this week, what is it that God has to empty myself? What is it that I, what is it that I have to empty myself of? If I'm going to really follow the way that Jesus pointed out himself and that he himself followed, where he turned the other cheek, where he treated others as he would have himself be treated, where he loved his enemies and he blessed those who persecuted him, where Jesus took up the cross. Where then do I need to turn the other cheek? Where is it that I need to treat others as I would have myself be treated, which may mean speaking up for them too? Where is it where I would have to still, in doing all that, still love my enemies rather than make my enemies the enemy and scapegoat them too? Like, where do I have to do that? Where is it that I have to take up the cross? Jesus declares his kingdom as a way of peace. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of self-giving love. Fighting the battle with the enemy's weapons means I've already lost. The cross is the victory. I think there's a hymn on that one too, isn't there? See, Gordon Fee, another scholar, he said this. He said, in this text is the epitome of God-likeness. The pre-existing Christ was not a grasping, selfish being, not a grasping, selfish being, but one whose love for others found its consummate expression in pouring himself out in taking on the role of a slave and humbling himself to the point of death on behalf of those so loved. Let me say this, because this is a part of what I wanted to say today, but I want to make sure I drive this home so that everything can be interpreted through this, in, in my view, in light of this. I want you to look at this text. I want you to think about something. Do you believe that God knows you? Yes, He is a God of community. He's also a God of individuals. So my question is, do you believe that God knows you? And if you do, then I want you to look at this text. And I want you to tell me, do you think that if God was willing to do this, that his love for you would somehow be fickle? Conditional? Do you really think that God who would do this would then look at you and play games with your life? No. God who does this does not love you with a fickle love. He loves you with a furious love. A God who would do this would never play games with our lives because it cost him too much. So Christian, settle. Settle your heart in the kenosis of God. Settle your mind in the kenosis and the self-emptying, self-giving love of God. If pastors, preachers, and teachers tell you otherwise, open this up and Sing Paul's song. And don't forget. And then when you've got that, go back to verse 5. The part that you and I would rather probably not be in there. And start asking how I need to adopt this attitude too. Okay, so that when the world looks at the church, 
they'll see a church that loves with something more than a fickle love. They'll see a church who loves with something more than a conditional love. But they'll see a church who looks a little bit more like this too. <clears throat> the population of Germany in 1933 was around 60 million people. Almost all Germans were Christians, belonging either to the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestant churches. The Jewish community in 1933 was less than 1% of the total population. Are you with me? Did you know that? That Jewish community in 1933 was less than 1% of Germany's population. Less than 1%. And the attitudes and actions of German Catholics and Protestants during the Nazi era... How was it shaped? Well, it was shaped by their religious beliefs, but other factors as well. It was shaped by the backlash against the political, economic, and social changes in Germany that occurred in the 1920s. It was shaped by the anti-communism. It was shaped by the nationalism. And it was shaped by the resentment toward the international community in the wake of World War I, which Germany lost, and for which it was forced to pay heavy reparations. Now, these were some of the reasons why most Christians in Germany welcomed the rise of Nazism in 1933, but they were also persuaded by a statement on, quote, positive Christianity in Article 24 of the 1920 Nazi Party platform, which read this way. We demand the freedom of all religious confessions in the state insofar as they do not jeopardize the state's existence or conflict with the manners and moral sentiments of the Germanic race. The party as such upholds the point of view of a positive Christianity without trying itself confessionally, without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit at home and abroad and is convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can only be achieved from within on the basis of the common good before individual good. So the largest Protestant church in Germany in the 1930s was the German Evangelical Church, comprised of 28 regional churches and included three major theological traditions. It was Lutheran, um, I believe it was Reformation, and it was uh, Reformed, and it was United. Now, historically, the Germanic Evangelical Church viewed itself as one of the pillars of German culture and society. Just think that through. With a theologically grounded tradition of loyalty to the state. Now, during the 1920s, a movement emerged within German evangelical church called the German Christians. Everybody say German Christians. This was a movement. And the German Christians, quote-unquote, embraced many of the nationalistic and racial aspects of Nazi ideology. And once the Nazis came to power, this group sought the creation of a national church called the Reich Church, and supported a Nazified version of Christianity. Now, during Hitler's reign in Germany, at least 16,500 pastors supported Hitler's deplorable take on Christianity and his justification for ultimately murdering Jews because of German uh, uh, superiority and German supremacy and that sort of thing. And there was actually theological views called the concept of orders, which I'd be more than happy to talk to you about later. There were, there were actual theological points behind this, all right? 
And so 16,500 German pastors advocated to their flocks week in, week out in this newly Protestant right church that in this German evangelical church, that, that they were in the right and they were supposed to support the Nazi racial and nationalistic ideology. And those who supported such extraordinary twists on the scriptures were men like Martin Neimoller, who was arrested and spent seven years in a concentration camp, and people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was in prison and executed eventually. Bonhoeffer did not always oppose Hitler's theology, and most people don't realize that. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of us have heard of, his theological system actually remained beholden to Germany's nationalism. And he supported it theologically with a rigid theology called the concept of order. So Bonhoeffer, being a theologian, had theology for which he could be behind this kind of move. Even though in his spirit something didn't seem right. So he got bored with German theology and education, so he took a one-year exchange program into New York where he was going to study at Union Theological Seminary. And it was there that everything changed for him. Bonhoeffer spent a year as an exchange student seeking this sort of meaningful encounter with an authentic encounter of Jesus. And it was there he began grasping with the inadequacy, and this is his words, the inadequacy of modern American theology exposure to white churches who were content to function as mere, and this is his words, social corporations absent of gospel, cross, sin, forgiveness, death, and life. And so his urgent quest of something of worth beyond Protestant, Protestant cultural captivity and apathy of the predominantly and of the white churches of America that day led him to the Esbinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And it was there that Dietrich Bonhoeffer found what he called the Black Christ tradition. He had never heard of that before. See, New York's Harlem community flourished during the time of great economic and social upheaval of the Great Depression, continuing Southern Reconstruction and complicating sort of urban migration realities. The great migration of African Americans from the South was this sort of exodus that saturated with hope and religious significance New York. And though the trek was often accompanied uh, by despair and disappointment, it's widely accepted that the Harlem Renaissance, which is what it came to be called, the Harlem Renaissance was truly, and I'm quoting a man named Reggie Williams who wrote a book called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, uh, which I would highly recommend. He, he wrote this, he said, communal transformation of consciousness, a cure, a cure, a Boy, I'm struggling. Occurred. What's the word? Occurred? Occurred? Occurred. Thank you, man. I lost my southernness for a minute because everything's ER. Occurred. Occurred through the period and became a fertile ground for people like Bonhoeffer. All right, so listen. So Bonhoeffer met a friend, African-American classmate named Albert Fisher, who offered him a counter-narrative to the white racist fiction of black subhumanity. In other words, Bonhoeffer started immersing himself in this black church in Harlem and had black friends, and he began to discover for himself what black men and women really were in light of what he had been told and heard, even on this side of the shore by the white folks who were going to the seminary and stuff. And Williams says that the reaffirmation of the black community's marginalization meant that a black experience of the political transition included the conversation not only about peace and democracy after the war, but also about black humanity in general. 
The Harlem Renaissance refigured black identity politically, socially, and spiritually on an international scale as well as the U.S. And Bonhoeffer began to be educated and exposed to the numerous cases of miscarriages of justice and lynchings and the organized violence of white supremacy that was contaminating urban contexts and even especially, even and especially the church. And at times led by the church. And it was this transformation where he experienced a suffering Christ. Where he experienced the suffering people holding on to a suffering Christ. Where he experienced the people who were being poured out, holding on to a Christ who poured himself out. He called that the black Jesus. And Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer took this experience, this awakening, this empathetic engagement back to Germany. He dislocated himself from his white Germanness into another marginalized community in the U.S. and then relocated himself back into Germany and saw the Jews completely different because he saw Christ different. And that becomes the Bonhoeffer you know. The Bonhoeffer that stood against the Nazi regime. The Bonhoeffer that stood against the genocidal moves of Germany. And that Bonhoeffer, that Bonhoeffer in 1934, after coming back after his one unbelievably transformative year with black Jesus in the Harlem Renaissance, came back and preached this on 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Sermon was on how strength is made perfect in weakness. And he said this. He said, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing now. Christians should take a stronger stand in favor of the weak rather than considering first the possible right of the strong. He was executed in 1945, taking a stand with the weak. But before his execution, eventually 7,000 pastors left the 16,500 and joined the confessing church which was an alternative movement of the way of Jesus to German Lutheranism, of the German Christianity. It's important to know, just as a side, that in the beginning of all the hubbub, only 200 pastors left the 16,500 to join Bonhoeffer and those guys. Only 200, y'all. Majority's not always right. It took death for something to change. Now, what compelled Bonhoeffer? I submit to you a re-understanding of Philippians 2. An understanding that this Christ who self-empties and self-humiliates calls us to humility. Calls us to humility. Humility for all. I submit to you that this Christ 
who is kenosis, calls us to humility. And that humility leads us to repentance. Church, I am, I am admittedly shocked sometimes at myself and at us, large collective us, at sometimes our inability to just admit that there is something to change inside of me. That there is something to change inside of my country. Something to change inside of the church. And it doesn't have anything to do with power. And it doesn't have anything to do with the strong. It's going to always have something to do with the weak. And I'm amazed at my tendency to place myself in the position of the weak when I'm actually in the position of the strong. And I look at God who leveraged His privilege, His power, His position to save me. What am I willing to leverage? And the challenge is I can't leverage something I don't realize I have. But when I see a God who self-empties, when I see a God who pours Himself out, on behalf of those who did not deserve it. I'm rattled. I'm shaken. I'm pushed toward intra, sort of self-reflection and ask, am I willing to do that too? Or am I just going to play the role of everyone else and scapegoat and want to be the victim? And every week we gather, we remember the self-emptying God who is the Christ. And every week we hold the bread and the cup. We hold the self-emptying God who is Christ. And every week we come to the table. We come to the table received fully and freely despite everything we are and everything we might have done because God Himself emptied Himself out for us so that we could come to this table and enter into His life. But then when we drink the cup and we eat the bread, we are invited that we are summoned into a life of ongoing self-emptying so that in our own self-emptying, people will see the self-emptying Christ. The table becomes our reorienting strength, our reorienting courage, our reorienting identity for the God who knows us best and loves us most.